This is a one and all media podcast. Today. 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 With Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. In this message, Pastor Jeff is still in the renovation series, looking at a passage from Romans chapter 8. Pastor Jeff is about to share how we can win the battle between us as new creations in Christ and the temptations we face in our earthly bodies. Let's get into this message and see what the book of Romans can mean for our lives in this present day. This is Today with Jeff Fines. I want you to turn in your Bibles to one verse of Scripture. It's Romans 8, verse 13. I'm going to read it in a moment. Romans 8, 13. And we're in a series called Renovation. And here's what we basically said. That there's a calling on your life and mine to pursue holiness and purity and Christ-likeness in our lives. We've said that there's got to be a bridging of the gap between what we say we believe in private and how we live our lives in public. And if our country has any hope at all, it's that Christ's followers begin to live out the life they say that they believe internally. So much so that there's a clear distinction between the Christ follower and the non-Christ follower that would be so compelling to people who don't yet know Jesus that they would at least want to consider the worldview that Jesus came to bring. And so to do that, we've said there's a little battle going on in our lives. We talked about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and we said each of us have two different people in our lives. We have the virtuous self, the righteous, self-righteous, religious self that really isn't that virtuous at all because this kind of guy's religious. He does all of these rituals and, and, and he prays a certain direction or does a certain amount of good works because he thinks by doing so, God will owe him salvation. And this guy is the narcissistic selfish self and he doesn't want anything to do with God or the law or religion. And we said that all of us have both these two selves in us before we are born again. So both of these are equally us. Not one is more us than the other. Both of these, we are equally these two people, the virtuous religious guy and the narcissistic rebel against God guy. But we also said that this is the guy ultimately who ends up winning because the flesh and the power of this old man in us is, is so powerful that he is able to overcome to such a degree that the Bible describes us as being slaves to this guy, slaves that we have a master. But then the Bible says that you and I are born again. And when we're born again, something beautiful happens. This is the new us. And this guy is mortally wounded, the bad guy. But we have to do business with this guy too to let him know that we know we're accepted by God on the basis of what? Grace. 
We are saved by grace through our faith in what has already been done for us. And at that point, we're no longer two distinct people in one. We are now one person. And in Galatians 2.20, we're told this, and I'll come back to Romans 8.13. Actually, let me go ahead and read Romans 8.13 says this, that if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. Let me say it again. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. Now the new man has a new battle. The old battle was between these two guys, but that's not the battle anymore. The battle now is between the new us, and in Galatians 2.20 we're told I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not the battle between these two guys. There is a battle. It's not going from from war to peace. It's still war. But the war now is between the real us. See, in the old battle, both of these are the real us. But now there's only one real us. The real us that wants to do the good. The real us that delights in the law. And the reason we delight in the law is the law is the way we please, not appease, but please God. And we want to please God because we've been born again and we're able to see all the goodness that God's brought into our lives. We know we're not saved by the law. We're no longer a slave to it. Now Jesus Christ lives in us. And because Christ lives in us, the battle now is between the real us and this flesh. We are a new person incarcerated in, a, in the body of flesh. And so now the temptations of the flesh are going to try to overcome he who is in us. But we're told that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And so what I want to do in this very practical message quickly, and i got to move quickly because I want to do something fantastic at the end of it. I wanted to see what the Bible said. How can we defeat now, since we really do desire to be the people God wants us to be, and we have all these temptations and the flesh, we're incarcerated in this flesh, it holds us back because of its desires. How can we win the battle? In this old battle, you can't win. You just can't. You have no power, but now we have power through the power of God living his life. The, the Christ lives in us. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We now have the power. How can we overcome? How can we win this battle? And I believe the Bible gives you eight steps to this victory. I know you, you seldom hear Pastor Jeff say, eight steps. I'm not a formula guy. I'm not an acrostic dude, but this series has been pulling stuff out of me. And I want to race through these quickly. If you ever hope to win this battle and to become the person God wants you to become, and first let me say, if you have no passion to become the person Christ wants you to become, we've got to go back all the way before you were born again. If there's no real passion in you to be holy, to pursue purity, and to be different, and to be compelling, and to be like Christ, then that's because you've not been born again yet. Because when you're born again, that's the automatic thing that happens. He not only changes what you do, he changes what you want to do. There's a new passion, new desire in you. Now... Here are the steps. Number one, you've got, first of all, acknowledge that you're in a war, man. You're in a fight for your life. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I may myself be disqualified. What? I can't believe that the Apostle Paul would talk about being disqualified. What's he saying? He said, if I don't, if I don't beat my body, if I don't get this flesh in check, then I will be disqualified from preaching the good news of the gospel because when I preach it, no one will believe it because it's had no impact on me. So there's got to be an impact on me. He said, I'm in a war, man. And I've got to acknowledge that I'm in a war and it's a daily one against this flesh. Now let me just take a time out here. God gave you God-given desires. 
The point is that because you know and acknowledge that they're from God, that he also gave you legitimate means to fulfill every desire. It's when you start trying to fulfill these desires by illegitimate means and step out of the parameters God's given that then the flesh takes over and you're ruled by it and that brings death and destruction. So the first thing you've got to realize, man, is you're in a battle for your life. And if there are no spiritual disciplines in your life, if there's no daily Bible reading, if there's no pursuit for purity, if you think you can just drift into a life of purity, sooner or later, you're going to be doomed. That's why the apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I stretch and I strain, I forget what's behind me, and I keep marching forward with everything that I am to pursue Christ's likeness in my life. Here's the point he's making. I think you've heard me tell the story. One of the most uh, prideful, arrogant demonstrations that I can ever remember in my life was when I was playing a basketball in university and we were playing one of the top 15 teams in the country and they came to our place. The coach was so arrogant about their ability and because we were in a lesser division that he started his second string against us. And I mean, by the end of the first quarter, we were up 20 points and he was angry and he was yelling at the players. By halftime, he decided to put in the first string, but it was too late. We already had momentum. The crowd was in it. He did a Bobby Knight and threw the chair out on the floor and got kicked out of the game. And then at the end of the game, you could hear him yelling in the locker room because we won the game. And he was berating his players, but it wasn't the player's fault. It was his fault for underestimating, severely underestimating his opponent, which means he didn't prepare for us during the week, which means he wasn't prepared in game time. I'm telling you, the first thing the Bible reminds you of is that if you think you're not in a battle and you think you can just drift into this, you will lose. You will not win this battle over the flesh. Second, remind yourself that the old sinful you is decidedly already dead. Now, once you acknowledge you're in a battle, once at least you're honest with yourself, then the second thing, ironically, is you're supposed to remember that this guy has been mortally wounded. You've got power in you now, power to overcome sin and death. Uh, my friend John Ortberg tells a story, and I think I've told it numerous times, where some pastors invited him downtown L.A., and uh, he went downtown L.A. They find themselves in Los Angeles late at night, and then they met up with some other guys who invited them into a, a place that he would rather not go, but he went in order to share the faith, share, his go- share the gospel, the good news, and he, uh, he's coming out of this place, downtown L.A., bad part of Los Angeles, so you know it could happen, and it's about 1.30, 2 a.m. in the morning, and they... They just happen upon a fight that's happening. Actually, it's not a fight. It's three or four guys beating this other guy up. And as a pastor, Orberg says, I couldn't just stand there. How could I just stand there and let this happen? This guy was probably going to be beaten to an inch of his life. And so I don't know where it came from, but there was courage. And I just said, hey, you guys, knock it off. Now, can you imagine a pastor? Hey, you bad people, stop that. And he said the, the, the three or four thugs just looked at him. And then their eyes got real big. And they actually started backing up, and then they ran away. And Orberg said, I could not believe it. So I got even more brave, and I said, don't you do that again. And so he said, I got my chest out, and I'm thinking, man, I must look intimidating. Then he turns around, and he bumps into Mongo, who was a six-foot-eight, 280-pound bouncer from the place he just uh, exited. They saw Mongo, not him. And Orberg makes the analogy that, hey, you know, if I'm that brave with Mongo behind me, how brave should I be knowing that God's right with me? So if I know that God is with me and that a mortal blow has been struck against this man of the flesh, the old self can no longer dominate. I'm not subject to him. He's subject to me. 
There is power in me. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Paul says it like this in Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, the body of sin, not the spirit, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, but the body, the flesh, this body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, he would be weakened so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's greatness in all of us. Someone greater than Mongo is living in, on the inside of us, and we have the power. Once you acknowledge that you're in a war and you take it seriously, then you've got to remind yourself, however, the old guy's dead. There's power in me to overcome no matter what it is, no matter how long I've been doing it, no matter how much I think it's stuck to me like Velcro, there's power in the Spirit of God to overcome. Third, you've got to develop more hatred for sin. Let me give you a visual of what you know sin is even if you're not willing to admit it, does in our world. Sin in our world causes things like the Holocaust, where you've got death camps where people slaughter one another, and gas ovens where we throw little children into them before they have a chance at life. Uh, sin causes things like the Rwandan genocide, where there are bodies in rivers and gorges where friends pick up machetes and kill friends. That's what sin does. Sin causes human trafficking, where you've got humans sold into slavery and loaded up on cargo ships, and, and shipped to different parts of the world and sold for a price. Sin calls the Twin Towers and people flying planes in them in the name of God. That's not in the name of God. That's in the name of sin. The taking the lives of the innocent. Sin in our world causes starvation. Little children dying before they have a chance at life. And it's not because there's not enough resources in our world. We've got enough resources in the world to feed the world ten times over. It's that we mismanage it because of our pride and because of our egotism and because of our greed. That's, what, that's a visual of what sin causes. What the Bible tells you is even though that's noticeable, what you don't notice is when you live according to the flesh, what you are doing is the same kind of death and disintegration that happens on planet earth as a result of sin is happening in your soul. You may not notice it on the outside, but you are killing yourself. There's a tarnishness. There's a disintegration. You may think you're getting away with it for a season. But ultimately, the longer you participate in it, the more it is killing you on the inside. You're emotional. There's fear. There's anxiety. There's worry. There's doubt. All of these things start to happen inside you that destroy you from the inside out. And as you get older, you start to wonder why there's such a sense of, of, of dissatisfaction and of worry and of doubt and of fear. You're almost gripped and overwhelmed with what is yet to come. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 13 again, for if you live according to the flesh, if you just respond every time the flesh wants something in illegitimate fashion, you're going to die. And that's a physical, emotional, psychological death. All are included in the word. But if by the Spirit, by he who is in you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One of my favorite uh, works of art, actually, and literature comes from Oscar Wilde, believe it or not. Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray was an incredibly handsome young man. And the artist asked him to paint his portrait. And when Dorian saw it, he became enamored, almost enraptured with his own good looks. And he starts to dream a little bit. So he wistfully intones about how wonderful it would be if somehow he could live any way he pleased, but that no disfigurement would mar his own countenance, that the lawless life that he wanted to live, the debauchery, somehow he could live it and it wouldn't mar his countenance, but instead all the marks would go to the painting. 
If only the portrait could grow old and he could remain unscathed by his way of living. And if you know the story and the parable, years later, Dorian goes up to the attic to take a look at the painting. He's shocked by what he sees. The horror, the hideousness, and the blood marred the painting of now what he truly looked like. When the artist who painted Dorian Gray saw what had happened to the painting, he begged Dorian Gray. He said, come clean, man. Doesn't it say somewhere, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow? And then in a fit of rage to silence the voice of conviction, Dorian Gray murders the artist. And then he takes the same knife and he slashes the painting to remove any visible reminder of the wicked life he's living. And what happened is, rather than the painting coming to an end, the painting at that point was fully restored, and Dorian Gray lay on the ground completely disfigured that he was so unrecognizable at his funeral that even his friends didn't know who he was. What is the point of this parable by Oscar Wilde? Well, the point is this. We may not always see what's going on in your life on the outside, But rest assured, when you're living by the flesh and outside the parameters God has given you and you're missing the mark by sin, you are destroying yourself every day on the inside. There's destruction. There's going to be debilitation and disintegration of the soul so that you get to a point when you're so far away from God, you're so far deep in the darkness that even when you see the light, it's hard to find your way back. You gotta make war. You gotta take this seriously. And you've got to know that just because you can't see anything on the outside doesn't mean something, the disintegration is not occurring on the inside. Four, refuse to be bullied by sins, deceits, and manipulations. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What is a deceitful desire? Now, as a Christ follower, you're supposed to gain in your knowledge and understanding here. What, what does it mean, a deceitful desire? Well, it's a desire that you have that's trying to deceive you. Remember what we said. You have desires that are God-given. And for every desire that God gives you, he gives you a way to fulfill it that is godly, that is legitimate. Let's take intimacy. Let's take sex. There is a way. God gave you that desire, and there is a legitimate and an illegitimate way to fulfill it. And it's in the context of marriage with the one to whom you're married. And so what happens? Sin deceives you. It tells you, wait a minute, you can, you can have this now. And what you end up doing, like Esau, you sacrifice your future for the pleasure of the present. A young girl settles for a man she knows will not lead her spiritually. And as she grows closer to God, she draws further away from her husband. They start to argue over the kids. Should we read the Bible to them? No, we shouldn't do that. We'll let them make up their own mind. We don't want to force religion down them. And then they start arguing about finances. She wants to give to something outside of herself. He wants to hoard. They talk about leisure, how they spend their free time. Do they serve others or do they serve themselves? A man decides to cheat. This one time, maybe on his taxes or maybe at work or something. But suddenly it becomes the norm of how to get ahead. So it's made him a false promise. It can never deliver what ultimately it promises because sooner or later you get caught. And then he loses credibility with his friends and with his workplace. Then he finds it difficult to get a job. Sometimes never get a job again. 
And he never meant for it to happen, but it always ends like this. Always. Sooner or later. The Bible says God is not mocked. Your sins will find you out. A young girl makes a decision to try this drug for the first time. She tells herself that she'll be able to quit any time. And she immediately gets the approval of the group with which she wants to identify. But then she wakes up one day and she realizes it's got her. It's got her. She doesn't have it. And it's killing her on the inside and the outside with every passing day. There's a young man and he's going to click on a website. Just out of curiosity, he can stop whenever he wants. And then all of a sudden he finds himself thinking about it all day. His heart races. His pulse quickens on the way home to his private room. Suddenly he finds himself being awakened in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., and he turns the light on, fires up the computer. And he gets to a point where his sense of intimacy is so warped, he wonders if he can ever have a normal relationship with any girl. When he started out, he thought it was going to be okay. He wanted this instantaneous fulfillment. But the deceit of sin is it tells you, I promise you this, and it never delivers. It does deliver. It delivers death. Gary Richmond talks about an experience he had at the zoo with a 13-foot cobra whose venom could kill a 1,000 people. This particular snake had a scar above its left eye that made it look like the embodiment of evil. And so when the snake shed its skin, the skin would get stuck, it would get caught on the scar, and it would have to be removed by hand. And he says the trouble with snakes is that they don't have hands. So five people have to go in to the cage. Two keepers, one curator, one veterinarian, and then Gary. Gary Richman, who writes the story. He says, the snake slithers out from its den. It spreads its cape, raises up to full stature, looks at the five intruders, and then decides on his first victim, and it just so happens to be the curator, the guy they need the most. And all of a sudden, he speaks, and he says, man, let's get this over with quickly, and they throw this black net over him to blind him. As they're sitting there trying to remove this skin, their hands are trembling, sweat dropping off of their foreheads. Gary looks down and notices he has a cut, and this snake is releasing venom that the towel is becoming nothing but venom. And he's afraid it's going to touch his skin because it, here's a venom that can drop an elephant just like that. So they're all sweating. His muscles are weakening. Fingers are starting to cramp as they're holding this thing together. And then suddenly when they finally remove the skin, the curator says something very interesting. He says, you know what? More people are bitten when they're trying to let go of snakes than they are when they first grab on. Easy to grab, hard to let go. Can you say that with me? Easy to grab, hard to let go. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. When it talks about by their own evil desire and enticed, is James' way of saying this to you? that the devil has the goods on you. He knows your personal weakness. And just when you think you're starting to make progress, isn't it amazing? If you have an addiction of some kind, you're going along, everything's good, 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 boom, out of nowhere. You're put in a position. You think that's by accident. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts.
Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.